this is actually the third part in the series on the book of Matthew, but we're dealing with chapter 4. And we're looking at God's plan of impact on the world through Jesus Christ. That's the focus of this whole series. And then today we're looking at Jesus testing and early ministry. You have a note sheet in your bulletin if you'd like to take notes. I left a lot of room on there for doodling in case you get bored. And uh, But make sure you show me the doodles afterwards because I like to collect those. So when we're going through Matthew, we've got to think about here, what's the context of Matthew 4? What have we already looked at? Where have we been in Matthew and where is it going? You look back a few weeks ago, we looked at the lineage of Jesus, his right to the throne. We looked at the birth narratives that showed us his divine origin. Last week we looked at the baptism of Jesus and that's where we saw divine approval. You know, we saw the dove, the spirit descending as a dove and resting upon Jesus. We saw or we heard the Father speaking from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, from a human perspective, I would think that's when I would want to launch my ministry, right? You've been out there with these huge crowds. Um, God has spoken from heaven, say, This is my beloved Son. That would be a great time to launch a ministry. But God didn't do that right then, right? He had something else in store for Jesus. Before he launches his ministry, there's going to be a time of testing. There's, there's going to be a special time of testing for Jesus because with every great calling comes great testing. That's the fill-in-the-blank on your handout. With every great calling comes great testing. Jesus had the highest calling of all, right? He was called to be the Messiah perfect, sinless one to be the sacrificial lamb to die for our sins. His calling was high. The testing was extreme for him. But God has a calling for each one. Each one of us has a calling in life. And we are going to face testing. We have to realize that. And we need to be prepared for that. Now, what's your calling in life? And what kind of testing is God putting you through? Or has he already put you through? You know, it's not just spiritual testing, but even uh, vocational testing. Testing. Uh, one of the most vivid examples uh, that I've seen personally uh, comes from my nephew, Eric, who joined the Marine Corps back in 2001. He was in boot camp, and we got to go down to MCRD down in San Diego, the training depot down there, and it was the week of 9-11. We'd just gotten down there, and then that was Monday night, Tuesday morning, all, all that broke loose on, uh, in New York. And uh, it was quite a memorable week. Um, I remember making a few wrong turns and uh, coming face-to-face with a 50 caliber machine gun and a bunch of Marines standing uh, right there guarding the post. So it was quite, uh, quite an experience there. But in, uh, in boot camp, you know, before these young guys can take on the name Marine, they've got to go through not only the entire boot camp, but then at the end of boot camp, there is a special period of testing called the crucible. This is a time of 54 hours of torture, sleep deprivation, food deprivation. They, with their platoon, have to go through numerous obstacle courses and different events to show that they can work together as a team and succeed. They'll travel 42 miles on foot during that time. They get only eight hours of sleep. These guys, this event starts at 2 in the morning. They get these guys up 2 in the morning, and they go till midnight. They sleep for four hours. They get up at 4 in the morning. They go till 11 at night. They sleep for four hours again. They get up at 3 in the morning and then have their final uh, period of this testing, which is called the reaper. 
they have to march up a 10-mile march up this very steep hill that culminates their test. And all during this time, these couple of days, they've been going through courses like the day movement resupply course, where teams resupply water, ammunition, and MREs, their meals ready to eat, um, through a course which consists of trenches, wire fences, and walls. They have the same type of thing that's set up for a combat assault resupply, where they're doing this through a combat assault course. My favorite, I think, would be the enhanced obstacle course. Have you seen the obstacle courses these guys have to go through and be able to negotiate? Well, they have to do this as a platoon and carry a dummy casualty uh, on, a, on a stretcher, a 100-pound weight, plus ammunition cans weighing up to 50 pounds. And they have to ne negotiate that obstacle course successfully as a team. That sounds like a lot of fun. I've been down there and I've seen these obstacle courses. It's, I don't think I'd get over the first hurdle, much less the entire course. Once they make it up the Reaper, if they survived all of that testing, then they have a special ceremony. And they raise the American flag, they play the national anthem and the Marine Corps hymn, and then they are pinned with, presented with the eagle, globe, and anchor, the Marine Corps emblem. And that's when they transition from being a recruit to a Marine. The amazing thing is in this video that we would watch, we'd see these, these young men just break down sobbing because they were so proud, they were so overwhelmed with emotion that they had finally made it, they made the, survived the test successfully and now could be called a Marine. And their drill instructors weren't screaming at them anymore, they were congratulating them. It's a pretty amazing sight. Now, Jesus went through his own crucible of testing before he launched his ministry. That's what we're going to be looking at today. The major themes we're going to be wrestling with today are around temptation and testing. We're going to look a lot at what is temptation? Where does it come from? How do we deal with it? Can the Holy Spirit lead us into temptation? And was Jesus really tempted? Did he really suffer temptation like we do? We're going to be looking at all of these things. We are in Matthew chapter 4. That's page 682 of those Bibles that were handed out. I'm going to start reading that in just a second here. Now, the stage is set in verse 1. Matthew writes, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Does that cause any red flags in your, in your thinking? The Holy Spirit led Jesus out to be tempted by the, by the devil? For me, it just sounds, wow, why... Could God really do that? Does he do that? Well, he did in this case. What we have to understand, though, is the difference between tempting and testing. And the tricky thing is, in the Greek, it's the same word that's used for both. You have to determine the meaning by context. Now, what is temptation? Right? That's an enticement to sin, to disobey God. And the goal there with the temptation is that we should fail, that we should fall, that we should sin against God. Now, we have to keep in mind, God never does this. The Bible says clearly in James 1, verse 13, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. From God's perspective, it's testing. But what is testing? That's a trial or a test to prove your character, right? To show what you're made of. And it's also to refine your character. Now, the goal is that we should succeed, that we should grow. Now, for us, testing is usually both that combination of refining us as well as showing 
our character. For Jesus, it wasn't to refine him because his character didn't need any refining. But it was to show to the world and show to Satan his true character. Now read the quote on, on your handout. Jesus was not tempted so that the Father could learn anything about his Son, for the Father had already given Jesus his divine approval. Jesus was tempted so that every creature in heaven, on earth, or under the earth might know that Jesus Christ is the conqueror. He exposed Satan and his tactics, and he defeated Satan. Because of his victory, we can have victory over the tempter. Now, for us as believers, what's our source of temptation? The Bible says we have three spiritual enemies, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is that worldly system that we live in that, that is contrary to God. And we get temptation from that worldly system. The flesh is our not our physical body, but it's our sin nature, that part of us that back in the original uh, fall of Adam and Eve and ever since, our human nature has been bent towards sin. So we have that natural inclination to do what is wrong. And then there's the devil, of course, which you'll see in this next passage. And the Bible tells us we need to deal differently with each of those. It says we're to hate the world, we're to put to death the flesh, and we're to resist the devil. Now, this idea of how can the Holy Spirit lead in temptation, lead us into temptation, the Holy Spirit led Jesus out in the wilderness to be tested, right? So that was God's perspective on this. And it wasn't God the Father doing the temptation, right? It was Satan. He allowed Satan to come and to put Jesus to the test and to tempt him. Now, one commentator wrote, Satan's intent in the temptations was to cause Jesus to sin by taking shortcuts to the accomplishment of his kingdom purposes. God's purpose was to demonstrate Jesus' sinlessness through his obedience to the Father's will. So we'll see in this temptation, Satan is trying to entice Jesus to take shortcuts instead of following God's plan. Now, the question of could Jesus really be tempted? Some of us, I think, we think, well, Jesus was God. He couldn't really understand what I'm going through. He's not, hasn't really been tempted the way I am. Yeah, but Jesus, he was fully God, but he was fully man. And he was able to experience temptation the way we do, except one difference. Jesus did not have a fallen nature. He did not have that sin nature, the flesh that Paul talks about. But he was still human. He still experienced human needs like hunger. And he could still be tempted from Satan and from the world system. But the the temptations he faced were external to himself, not his own inside, inward temptations. Like uh, for us, that's a lot of the source of our sin. We lead ourselves astray by our own uh, fleshly desires. Now, let's take a look at verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That seems like a quite an understatement. To be fasting 40 days and 40 nights, and of course you'd be hungry. It's, it's not clear whether he was hungry that whole time or if God supernaturally gave him the ability to last that 40 days, and then all of a sudden the hunger hit, and that's when the testing began. But I don't know if any of you um, fast regularly. I've only done it a few times in my Christian walk. And what do you think about when you fast? Food, right? You're supposed to be thinking about God. Uh, but at least from at least my experience of it, as soon as I start fasting, boy, it's like all I can think about is when the fast is going to be over and when I can, can eat. 
And the funny thing is about a year and a half ago, the elder team uh, took a day and we said we're going to fast because we had some big decisions to make about our whole future as a church and what we're going to do in terms of building programs. And the you know leadership, Lance and Russ, they didn't really give us um, a lot of direction on the fast. They just said, okay, this Tuesday we're going to fast. And they didn't say, okay, till sundown or till midnight. Didn't say whether you have, have uh, drinks or not. So they left it up to us. So my, my fast, being the spiritual giant that I am, went to sundown. And, uh, and then my, my family and I went out uh, for a big dinner. And while we're waiting at the restaurant, I get a call on a cell phone from John Lee. And uh, his fast is going to midnight. And so he's talking to me about, man, how hungry he is. All he can think about is uh, food. And I didn't have the heart to tell him I was ready to sit down to a steak dinner. And he still had five hours to go on his fast. So we're great men of God. But fasting is a great spiritual discipline, probably something we should do uh, a lot more of. As we pick it up in verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, it's interesting, refers to Satan as the tempter. It reflects his very nature. He is one who tempts. He's one who tries to deceive and entice us into sin. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you are the Son of God. Now the phrase there can also mean since you are the Son of God. It doesn't mean that Satan is doubting who Jesus was or that he's trying to get Jesus to doubt who he is. He's saying, hey, since you are the Son of God... Let's, let's see some powers here at work. See all these stones around here? Let's, why don't you turn some of these into bread and satisfy your hunger? If you've ever, ever been to Palestine, uh, that part of the world, there are stones everywhere. That's why it was so popular in the Old Testament to stone people to death, right? Because they're easily accessible. That was a, a form of punishment they used. And uh, if you remember last week, John the Baptist he told the Pharisees, hey, don't come to me with that line that we're sons of Abraham. God can raise up children of Abraham from these very stones out here. So they were all around, and a lot of them looked like little loaves of bread. So Satan is enticing him, saying, come on, Jesus, use some of your supernatural powers to satisfy your hunger. Turn these stones into bread. Now, could Jesus have done that? Yeah, he could have, certainly within his power. Why, why wouldn't he, though? What is the core issue with this sin? Satan is trying to get him to fulfill legitimate needs by illegitimate means. Satan, Jesus wasn't there to use his supernatural powers to meet his own needs. Right? He was there fasting. God's will for him at that point was to be hungry. Jesus wasn't going to circumvent that using his own powers. And Jesus wasn't drawn into this situation as some kind of test of his magical powers like it's some Harry Potter novel. No, he was there to be obedient uh, to his father. And Jesus doesn't take orders from Satan. In fact, the scripture shows clearly that Jesus didn't even act on his own initiative. Many times in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. In John 5.30, he says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. In John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So Satan here is tempting Jesus to act independently from his Father. How about in our lives? Do we seek to fulfill legitimate needs by illegitimate means? Think of all the, the needs we have as, as human beings, as uh, 
just regular folks. We have needs to um, have places to live and have things and furnishings and clothes. Uh, we need food. We need companionship. All of these things. And so often we seek to fulfill those needs in our own power, in our own ways, and not wait on God to help us fill those needs. Even in the area of pride, you know, the Bible says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and He will exalt you at the proper time. And yet, so often we try and exalt ourselves. Now, what was Jesus' response in verse 4? Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He answered, It is written. He quotes a passage out of Deuteronomy and says, Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Now, is this a a verse that Jesus believed and lived? Yeah, he did. I mean, you look at the Gospel of John. You remember the encounter when Jesus is going through Samaria and he's at the well? And there's this woman at the well and Jesus is ministering to her, telling her about the kingdom of God. The disciples are off looking for food in the town. And they come back and they said, Jesus, have something to eat. And he says... I have food to eat of which you don't understand. And they said, well, did someone bring him something to eat while we were gone? And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's how committed he was. Even beyond food, he wanted to obey his father and do his will. Now, one thing I want us to take away from this, as we look at these temptations and the way Jesus responded, it's easy, and I've heard it taught uh, many times, Okay, the, the, the clue here, the, the key to fighting temptations is just to repeat some scripture back. You know, fight the devil that way. But it wasn't just parroting back some scripture. Jesus internalized that scripture. He lived it. He believed it. We need to do the same thing. It's not just enough to, to try and use scripture, some magic um, power against temptation, because it's not going to work that way. We have to internalize it. We have to read it, understand it memorize it, meditate on it, soak, soak in it, let it saturate our lives. And as we meditate on it day by day, it begins to change our thinking. And when we're faced with temptation and that desire to go the wrong way, that scripture can come to mind and help steer us on the right path. Now, scripture memory is one of, it's one of those things that um, I've done off and on as a, as a believer uh, sometimes I'm better at it than others. But I remember as a, as a young believer, uh, starting, you know, getting three-by-five cards and writing Scripture verses on them and memorizing them. And one of the first verses that I recall memorizing that really had a, a tangible impact on me was uh, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ. Notice he didn't promise to answer your prayer. He promised the peace of God. And I was a um, communications major in college, and it was my first uh, public speaking class. And I had to get up and give the speech. And you know how it is before you have to come stand up before an audience, you know, down, sitting down at my chair, my heart's just pounding within me. I'm just totally stressed out. But I'm recalling this verse and just praying over it and trying to give thanks in this situation and trusting God to give me the peace. And I didn't have any peace sitting down in, my, in the classroom. But as soon as I got up and turned around up at the, the front of the class, I just felt this 
supernatural peace come over me. And I remember just thanking God, saying, Lord, thank you. That was just amazing. Now, that's a silly little example. You know, who cares? A speech class. We're facing so many trials in life, whether health or job issues, family issues, that have us so stressed out. We can take God's word like that and incorporate it into our lives, let it change the way we think and change the way we feel. And God's going to do amazing things through that. There's other verses, you know, when you're encountering trials, a verse like James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So when you're going through trials, to remember, to meditate on a verse like that, you know, I, I tend to get caught up in, in wanting stuff. You know, I have a lot of hobbies, and I like to buy, you know, photo gear or a bike or whatever it is. And I get, get my thinking off track sometimes. And a verse like Colossians 3, 1 through 3 helps. If, the, if then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I've got to keep refreshing these in my memory. Psalm 34.1 or 34.18 The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. If you're brokenhearted, if you're crushed in spirit, to, to hang on and to memorize and meditate on a verse like that can help lift you back up. Psalm 119, a couple different verses. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. Verse 11 Thy word I have treasured in my heart that I, might, I may not sin against Thee. To treasure God's Word in our heart that we might not sin against Him. On and on it could go. The main thing is it's going to take discipline. You're going to have to memorize the Word and then keep remembering it. Meditate on it. And make sure you're using God's Word correctly. So don't just grab Scripture out of context, but make sure you understand what the true meaning was and then memorize it and meditate on it. And we'll see this idea of taking things out of context in this next temptation, the second temptation here in verse 5. Verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. So the holy city is Jerusalem. The highest point of the temple the pinnacle of, of the temple. And this is actually something that they've excavated in the Kidron Valley. And you can go, if you, when you go to Jerusalem next year on the, on the trip that the church is planning, maybe you'll be able to go down there and see this for yourself. But this is uh, most likely was at the southeast corner of the temple. And it was above the Kidron Valley. And there was probably a drop off of three, anywhere from three to 500 feet. They don't know for sure. So very high point there. In verse 6, Satan says, If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Notice, Satan's getting a little more sly here, right? He's now bringing in Scripture. It's like he saw, well, Jesus rebuked him, uh, with Scripture. So now Satan's going to pull out his own Bible and start using Scripture against Jesus. And it's like he's saying, okay, if you're the Son of God, you believe in God's Word, right? Well, then prove it. 
this verse in the psalm says that he's going to protect you. Now, I dare you, jump off this precipice here. Let's watch God protect you. But what's going on here? You see Satan is taking this out of context and manipulating Scripture to his own end. And many people do that today. You have to be very careful with understanding Scripture. Make sure even Pastor Lance or me or anyone else that is teaching you, you've got to understand and search the Scripture for yourself. Make sure they're teaching it accurately. But what's at the heart of this temptation? Satan is seeking to have Jesus force God's hand, right, to be presumptuous, to put himself in a situation that God the Father would have to act miraculously to save him. There might also be the idea that uh, it was a temptation to have Jesus display his his glory as the Messiah, because many many of the rabbis back then believed that Messiah would um, manifest himself on the pinnacle of the temple. So it could have been a, a ploy to try and get Jesus to show himself. What was Jesus' response? Verse 7. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. <clears throat> it is also written. He doesn't negate what Satan had said. That, that passage in um, Psalm 91 is is true, it's accurate, but Satan is taking it out of context. Jesus said, you've got to also consider this other passage that says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So Satan seeks to twist things, take them out of context. Jesus answers, again, with Scripture from Deuteronomy that, that balances that perspective. We've got to take God's Word as a whole and not isolate texts out of it. What does it mean to put God to the test for us? It's when we put ourselves in circumstances that require divine intervention, require God to act miraculously on our behalf. Perhaps uh, a diabetic says, I'm going to quit, you know, I'm going to give up my insulin and Jesus is going to protect me. That may be trusting God, unless God has truly told you to to do that and has healed you. Uh, I have a relative back in Nebraska that a um, number of years ago, he got into this group that was way off on the deep end on this let go and let God concept uh, to an extreme. And <clears throat> so he, he lived that out. He quit his job, quit doing anything. He just sat on the couch all day and waited for God to supply all their needs. That didn't go over real big with his family, needless to say. And right about the same time as when I came to, to know the Lord, and I went back there on a trip, and everyone was freaked out, thinking, oh, no, Mark's going to go off the deep end, too. But fortunately, I, I didn't. Now, you're probably familiar with the story of Gideon in the Old Testament, and what did he do? You remember the fleece story? He tested God that way. A lot of times, Christians use that as a role model. I'm just going to put the, uh, a fleece out and see if God answers. The thing we have to realize is that Gideon was really showing a lack of faith. God indulged him in that, but he was showing a lack of faith. He didn't just take God at his word and believe him. He he had to have God prove himself that he was truly going to do what he said he would do. God doesn't want us to demand fleeces from him. He wants us to trust him and to be obedient. In verse 8, we see the third temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. So they're up at a very tall mountain, very high mountain. And 
in the book of Luke, he says that in an instant he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. So it's, it seems to be more than just standing on a tall mountain and looking around at, at the surrounding land and the kingdoms, but supernaturally somehow Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all the glory and splendor and the, the riches that they had. He didn't show him all the downside, right? Every, every kingdom, every nation has a lot of garbage in it too. Showed him all the beauty of it to try and entice him. All this I will give you, he said in verse 9. All this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Now we have to ask ourselves, is Satan deceiving, being deceptive here? Does he really have the authority to give this to Jesus? And he does. You know, in, in Luke, Luke adds a little bit to this statement. He says, I will give you all their authority and splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I please. Well, that's Satan's testimony about himself. We don't necessarily want to believe a deceiver like Satan. But Jesus himself referred to Satan three times in the Gospel of John as the prince of this world. The Apostle Paul called him the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So this is really Satan's domain. So he's making a legitimate proposal here uh, to, to Jesus. But what's at the heart of this temptation? It's to short-circuit God's plan for salvation. Satan offered Jesus immediate glory and riches, while God's plan would take Jesus down the road of suffering and to the cross. Do you remember later on in the gospel accounts where Jesus is telling his disciples that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and he's going to be betrayed and turned over to the authorities and be killed? And Peter said, No, Lord, may it never be. What was Jesus' response? Get behind me, Satan. Yeah. Because Jesus knew that the road that God the Father had him on involved suffering and involved the cross. And anyone trying to deter him from that was thinking like Satan was. Do you think Satan does the same with us today? Do you think he tries to entice us with all the things of the world, all the, the riches and glory and power and... For us as believers, you know, he'll, he'll say, look, you can have all this. God wants you to have all this. You don't need to suffer. You don't need to do what Jesus said. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Deny yourselves. You know, he, he wants us to have it all right now. You know, we buy into that lie a lot. The Christian life does involve sacrifice. It does involve suffering for the Lord. And there's many folks out in the world that don't know Christ, and they're taking it hook, line, and sinker. Satan's lie, and they're running after the things of this world full throttle, and someday it may cost them their soul. What was Jesus' response in verse 10? Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. With one word, he rebukes Satan again. He doesn't stand there and argue with him. You notice he's not arguing and dialoguing with Satan. He's rebuking him. And something maybe we should take away in our own dealings with temptation that, that come from the devil is we don't need to stand there and engage in dialogue with him. Like, who's a good example of that? Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? Eve was dialoguing with Satan and he kept manipulating her and, and got her to um, fall away. And uh, Adam took it too. And we don't need to dialogue with Satan. We need to stand firm on the Word of God and rebuke him. 
Of course, Jesus worshipped God with all his heart. He was the only one. Jesus worshipped God with his whole heart. And uh, God is the only one we should worship as well. But the problem is, if you're like me, we worship God and we worship other stuff. Maybe very subliminally, we try to hide it. But we also worship possessions or power or our our own egos or whatever the case may be. Uh, We have this... Uh, two-minded nature about us. We're double-minded and we try and serve God with one part of our lives and yet we run after the world with another. God wants us to be entirely devoted to Him, to worship Him alone. The conclusion here in verse 11. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Why did the devil leave? Because Jesus told him to, Right? Jesus said, away from me, and Satan left. It just gives you a little glimpse as to who's in control here. It wasn't Satan. Jesus is the master. He's in control. And then the angels attended to his needs. God met his needs in his own time. Jesus didn't have to fulfill them with his own power. Now, it's easy as we look at these encounters to think, well, sure, Jesus withstood those tests because he was God, right? Well, Jesus is fully God, and he was fully man. Did he face those temptations using his supernatural powers, or did he face them as a man? Listen to this quote from this one uh, Bible commentary. It is important to note that Jesus faced the enemy as man, not as the Son of God. His first word was, man shall not live by bread alone. We must not think that Jesus used his divine powers to overcome the enemy because that is just what the enemy wanted him to do. Jesus used the spiritual resources that are available to us, the power of the Holy Spirit of God and the power of the Word of God. Isn't that amazing? Jesus stood there as a man full of power by the Holy Spirit and with the Word of God embedded in his heart and in his mind, and he withstood those tests. We have those same tools. We have the Spirit of God. If you are a believer, the Spirit of God lives in you, and we have God's Word to help us. And Jesus faced temptation and never gave in, and he's able to help us as well. Listen to these uh, passages out of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 2, 17 through 18. For this reason, he, meaning Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered in what he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. He himself suffered in what he was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. The amazing thing about the Christian life is we have Jesus as our high priest, and he can relate to us. He understands. He's been there. He knows what temptation is like, but he never gave in. And he can help us also in that fight against temptation. And Jesus passed the test. His character was proven. He was spotless, without compromise, without sin. And now we see in the next couple of parts of uh, chapter 4 here that he launches into his ministry. I'll start in verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, 
to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now what strikes me from that little passage is not just Jesus moving around to Capernaum and and traveling around the area of Galilee, but verse 14, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Now in the Gospel of Matthew, over and over and over again, he uses a phrase like that, to fulfill what the prophet said, to fulfill what the scripture said. And you know what that tells me? Is we can have great assurance that our scripture is true and accurate because Jesus fulfilled over 300 specific prophecies about the Messiah. Prophecies about um, where he would be born, the type of life he would uh, lead, his lineage, the way he would die, all of these things, over 300 prophecies that he fulfilled. And this would be humanly impossible for for someone to do, be impossible to do it by chance. Uh, You couldn't manipulate some of these things. You know, how are you going to manipulate being born of a virgin or being born in the town of Bethlehem? You can't do that. So what this tells me is these prophecies were recorded hundreds and some over a thousand years before Jesus walked on the earth. This Bible of ours is not myth. It's not fairy tales and fables. It's the authoritative word of God, and we can take great comfort in that. We should have boldness in that because uh, it is great truth. And the scripture, uh, these prophecies attest to that fact that your Bible is true. In the next section, before we go, read verse 17 there. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. For that, from that time on, just marks a change in the in the book of Matthew. From that first section, which was the preparation period, to the new section here, which is going to be the unfolding of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus picks up where John the Baptist left off. He's he's using that same phrase that John the Baptist had been using, but he's going to go much further than that. In this next section of the gospel here, starting in verse 18, we see Jesus calling his first disciples. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, these, these men had seen Jesus before. We know from the Gospel of John, they had seen him. They'd also seen uh, John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God when Jesus walked by. So this wasn't their first encounter. But what strikes me the most from this is their response. And Matthew really emphasizes that. That immediately they dropped their nets. They dropped what they were doing. They left everything and followed him immediately. I mean, they were busy about their vocation, right? They were fishermen. They were out there working with their tackle and mending nets and all of that. Jesus came by and said, you follow me. They didn't hesitate. They didn't say, well, wait, Lord, till I finish this project. They didn't say, well, what's in it for me? What's the pay and benefits package? They immediately dropped what they were doing and they followed him. Now, for me personally, that's a challenge. I mean, I look at my own life and it's like, do I respond to God that way when he, he says, follow me? Do I do that? 
How about for yourself? Do you find yourself sort of pushing him off and delaying? I know when I was a young believer, I was a college student at Sac State, and I came to Christ through Campus Crusade ministry out there. So I was surrounded by a lot of young people who were really on fire for the Lord, and most of my close buddies there were all going into full-time ministry. And I felt sort of like this peer pressure. Okay, you've got to do the same thing. And I just resisted that. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And God finally worked on my heart. I was at a crusade conference. I think it was a Christmas conference. And the speaker was talking about laying it all on the line for Jesus, just being willing to go wherever he wants you to go and do whatever he wants you to do. And the guy gave us that challenge to, to dedicate our lives that way. And I went up along with probably about 500 other people and laid my life on the altar. And, and I really meant it. And God started using that and changing my heart. And it was soon after that that I had determined in my heart that I wanted to serve God in full-time ministry. The only thing is, he didn't tell me back then that I was on the 25-year plan to get to full-time ministry. So that was way back in uh, 1983. And uh, so I've been in full-time ministry for a year now. But God finally got me there. And um, the the thing is, we don't know how God's going to work in our lives and how our future is going to unfold. But the thing is to have the right attitude and to be at that point where you're willing to do whatever he calls you to do. That's the key thing there. This chapter is wrapped up here. Verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the regions across the Jordan followed him. In a nutshell, we see here Jesus' ministry. And this is going to unfold over the next number of chapters. But Jesus wasn't just focused on his Jewish brethren. You can see from this little, these few verses that Jesus was ministering even to Gentiles in that surrounding region. They were all coming to him to be healed. And Pastor Lance, when he's back next week, is going to be preaching on Matthew 5, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to see now Jesus surrounded by these crowds. Now Jesus is going to teach them about the kingdom of heaven. So what do we take away from all this as we wrap up? There's three things I want you just to to reflect on. Be prepared for the calling that God has for you. There's going to be testing. You've got to be prepared for that testing. We've got to saturate our lives with the Word of God. Study it, memorize it, meditate on it. Let it soak in and help change your thoughts, your actions, your attitudes. That way you'll be able to stand up in that day of testing. We need to understand that our faith is not based on fables and fairy tales. We can go with confidence and share with boldness because the gospel is true. And the hundreds of prophecies fulfilled by Jesus attest to that fact. And then finally, be quick to respond when God calls you. Whether that's to obey in something small or perhaps he's calling you to take a big life change a step that's going to radically change your life? Are you going to trust Him with that? Are you going to obey in that? And sometimes it's obeying His calling, even if it's not for you personally. Maybe it's for someone in your family, a loved one. My wife and I had to go through that with our daughter, Emily. She's only 13. And uh, to get to the point where we're willing to let her go to Romania, that wasn't easy. At first, when she told us she wanted to go, we just said, nah, no way. We're not even, not even going to go there. And, uh, but God kept working on us, and we're, we're at the point where 
you know, we're excited about it and we can trust him with it. We'll see how much sleep my wife gets over the next couple of weeks while Emily's gone. But, um, you know, also perhaps maybe God is calling you to take that first step of faith, to trust him for your salvation. That's something he wants you to do. And don't hesitate. Do like these disciples and immediately follow him. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for giving us a calling in life, Lord, a calling that is so much higher than anything the world has to offer. Thank you for calling us to be your children, to be your ambassadors for Christ, to be your representatives here on earth. Lord, we know that we will face testing and trials and temptations. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit and through your word, Lord, that we would stand firm. We would not go down the path of temptation and sin. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be quick to respond to you when you call. Lord, that we would have faith to go wherever you want us to go, to do whatever you want us to do. Lord, if there are any here today who have not taken that first step of faith to trust you, to believe in you as their Savior, Lord, I pray even now that they would pray and reach out to you in faith and say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I know I can't do this on my own. I need a Savior. I need you to forgive me of my sin. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin and for rising from the dead. Lord, I trust you as my Savior and my Lord. Father, I know you will honor that prayer. Lord, I pray that you would go with us, help us to live lives that will honor you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.